you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, or 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's familiar to you, we've read it, but we're going to begin with this passage each week in this series. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And the phrase that we're focusing on in this Wednesday night series is right there in the middle of that paragraph in verse 7 where Paul encourages or he commands Timothy to train himself for godliness. And he says, Bodily training has some value, it's not without value, but training for godliness is a value in every way, both in this life and in the life to come. And so the two dangers that we're trying to avoid, we're just trying to steer right down the middle of the road and avoid these two dangers, they are legalism and laziness. The danger of legalism is the danger that in trying to train for godliness, we begin to think that we're earning something with God. We're, we're working for our salvation. We're contributing something to what God is going to do in saving a people. And that it's our effort that's causing God to love us or causing us to be godly. We want to stay away from that, but we also want to stay away from the danger of laziness that says, you know what, God is gracious and kind and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and it really doesn't matter what you do as long as you've given Him a spiritual head nod, you're good, and everything else will get sorted out when you get to heaven someday. Right in the middle is the way of wisdom that says, no, we're not earning our salvation. Jesus Christ paid our debt on the cross. God's grace came to us before the ages began, before we had done anything good or bad. He set His love on a people, and He determined to save those people. And when God's love freely comes into our lives, it's not that we loved God, but it's that He loved us, God is loving enough not to leave us in the mess that He finds us in, and He begins to work the process of sanctification in our lives, and we have a role to play in that process, and you could at least say in part that our role is, is described in this phrase, training for godliness. So I've referenced several times Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, and he talks in that book about the sin of ungodliness, and he distinguishes it from the sin of unrighteousness unrighteousness would be breaking God's commands and His laws and doing all sorts of horrible things. Ungodliness would be living one's life, uh, everyday life, with little or no thought of God or of His will or of His glory or what He wants from you. Just coming in a room, filling out the outline, sing the songs. I love those songs. Great. Go about the rest of your week as if the things that we talked about in here don't have any direct bearing on your quote-unquote real life. Segregating church from everything else that you do and think and the way you spend your time and your money. You have a church bucket and you put church things in there and then the rest of your life, you're really not distinguishable from any other person, believer or unbeliever. You're just sort of going along with the flow of culture, giving little or no thought to God at all. That's ungodliness. If we're training for godliness, we want to do the opposite of that. We want to live our lives thinking about God, thinking about His will, talking to Him, communicating with Him, worshiping Him, not just in this room, but throughout our lives. And tonight, as we think about all these 12 components of training that we've pieced together, we come to the topic of work, which is a big one for many of us, because you don't spend the majority of your week here, 
Some of us spend more time here than others, but most of you don't spend the majority of your week here in this building. You certainly, none of us, spend the majority of our week in a worship service in this room. There are other things that happen outside of this room, and we're going to put most of those things, many of those things, in the bucket of work tonight. So I just want to talk to you about work for a minute. I want to get your mind uh, moving in the right direction as you think about work. Some of these things I'm going to share with you may be of absolutely no interest to you. They're of great interest to me. I think these things are really, really interesting. Came across a study. Uh, If the American workforce were reduced to 100 people, and all the percentages of jobs remain the same. You understand all we're doing here is fractions, and we're making it easy for those of us who don't like fractions. Instead of giving you percentages, we're just saying 100 people. How many people would do different kinds of jobs? 13, biggest category in office and administration, 11 in health, transportation, sales. You see all these categories. All the way down at the bottom, we have one out of 100 would be an artist or a media or an athlete person. One out of 100 would be a scientist. One out of 100 would be in the legal profession. And one out of 100 would be involved in farming, fishing, or forestry. So, did you find yourself up there somewhere? Maybe in one of those categories, you fit into one of those buckets. Obviously, you could break these down in lots of different ways and categories, but this is how the study broke these things down. Uh, Interesting to me, I'm not going to put all the details of this study up, but if you break these broad categories down and you say, take not the categories, but the subcategories, actual jobs, What are the 20 best-paying jobs in the United States of America? Not the category, but the actual 20 best-paying jobs. Any guesses before I give you the answer? President? No. Somebody said CEOs. Athletes. Y'all are really, really smart people. One of the 20 is professional athlete. None of the 20 are pastors, for whoever said pastors. One of the top 20 would be CEOs of a company. And the other 18, I didn't list them out, but they're just various kinds of doctors. This kind of doctor, that kind of doctor, this kind of doctor. There's 18 of them in the top 20 actual job categories, plus you put athletes in there, plus you put CEOs in there. What do you think about the highest paying categories. Go back to the original categories. You lump all the people in that profession, not just cardiologist or brain surgeon or something like that. You just put all the subcategories back in those buckets. Here's the top three categories. Management, legal folks, and data and technology. Just as a big, broad category, those are the folks who get paid the most money. What do you think is the fastest growing segment and the lowest, or the not the lowest growing, but the fastest declining segment? Any thoughts about that? Vote for agriculture. This was interesting to me. Fastest growing is health. Not very surprising. Fastest declining, hospitality. And there's about four or five that are increasing, and there's about four or five that are decreasing in this study. Here's another way to look at all of these questions surrounding work. It's the question of who is working right now. This is really, really interesting. You read studies about who's working. We just put the generations that are uh, living up on the screen. Uh, You can see how I've color-coded these. The oldest two generations, the greatest generation and the silent generation are, for the most part, no longer in the workforce, okay? You may have an exception in there somewhere, and I don't need any of your wisecracks about who might be in that category, but you got a few people up in that older group that may still be in the workforce. And Generation Alpha, I don't know if that name's going to stick, but that seems to be what a lot of people are using for the next generation that's currently being born. They're not yet in the workforce, so the people who are working are baby boomers, Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z. 
The baby boomers are retiring fast, really, really fast, and there's a lot of them, baby boom, right? There's a lot of them, and they're getting ready to leave the workforce. The generation right behind them, Gen X, I think is the smallest generation as a group, as a whole. So the generation coming right up behind all those baby boomers who are retiring is not very big. So if you're wondering, you talk to people who are in business and they own companies and they're hiring and they're saying, there's nobody to hire. We can't find anybody to hire. We can't find any good people. That's sometimes an Odessa problem around here, but that's also just a workforce problem right now. As you look around, a massive generation of people retiring and a smaller generation coming up behind them. Millennials, it's my generation, are the biggest group in the workforce at the current time. And Gen Z, believe it or not, this is a weird thing, this thought never crossed my mind, because my daughter's in this age group, but Gen Z is now entering the workforce as you look at people who might have been born in the late 90s. So it's fascinating to look at who's working and who's not working. And I don't think I have to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this anyways. Okay? It's probably not a news flash. Millennials, will you put those generations back up? Millennials and Gen Z, they don't think about work the same way baby boomers do, do they? And you know what's funny is I'm looking around the room, some of y'all are in that baby boomer category and you're like, no, they do not. And some of y'all are in that Gen X category and you're like, no, we do not. There's different ideas about work and what's good at work or what's not good at work and how you think about work. So fascinating dynamics there. One last thing that is really interesting, uh, I didn't pull a, a study to, to reference and give you hard numbers, but I think this is generally understood. Uh, Americans, American workers, compared to workers in other wealthy countries. So I'm not comparing Americans to workers in very, very impoverished countries, but into developed working, modern countries, wealthy countries. Americans get less paid vacation. Americans get less time off. Americans get less vacation days. And this is the fascinating part. Out of what Americans get, they use less of it than people in other countries. They get less and they actually use less. You would think, well, they get less, they probably use all of it. No, they get less and they don't even use all of it. It's just fascinating. When I was in college, Brooke and I were accounting majors. My favorite classes in the business school were economics classes, microeconomics, macroeconomics. We took an international economics class. I loved economics classes. I can tell you with absolute integrity that after graduating with an accounting degree, I have never read another accounting textbook in my entire life. But I have a lot of books about economics because I think it's an interesting topic. It's not just interesting the issue of economics and the question of work is actually essential in you having a fully formed Christian worldview. And that's what we want in people. That's what we want in the kids up in Awana and the youth who are upstairs talking about this same topic and the college kids who are right behind us talking about this topic. That's what we want for you. We don't want you to just come, give a head nod to Jesus. Yes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and that's the full extent of your faith. We actually want you to have a fully formed Christian worldview. We want you to approach every aspect of life with the question, what does the Bible say about that thing, about that topic? And when it comes to work, which was a huge part in all of our lives, the Bible says a lot about work. So one last thing I want to do before we jump into the notes. I don't have this on a slide. I don't have it on your notes. I thought about this today as I was preparing. I need to give you a definition for work. might just assume that you know and I know what we're all talking about, but I don't want to assume that. So let me give you a definition for work. Very simple. An activity done to achieve a purpose or a result. That's work. An activity done to achieve a purpose or a result. 
Now, with that definition on the table, let me just tell you three things that are not part of that definition, okay? You getting a paycheck is not part of that definition. There's lots of things you do in life that would fall in the bucket of work that you don't get a paycheck for. So if you say, well, I'm not currently getting a paycheck or I've never had a job outside the home where I got a paycheck, that's okay. Work, work is still part of your life. Any activity you do done to achieve a purpose or a result. So you don't have to have pay. You also don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a title to be working, meaning no one outside of you has to recognize that what you're doing is work for it to be work. You're not just doing stuff waiting for someone else to validate it and say, yes, we're going to call you the director of regional this, whatever. You don't have to have a title to actually be working. Thirdly, listen to the definition, an activity done to achieve a purpose or a result. It's done with the aim of achieving something. But you don't have to actually achieve that thing to work. It's the activity done with a goal, with an end out there. And you may or may not get to that end, but you've still done the work. An easy illustration of that is evangelism. If our team goes to Kenya and they share the gospel with 100 people and they come home and none of them became Christians, did they evangelize? I think biblically the answer is yes, they did. We don't define it based on the results. We define it based on the activity. And the same thing is true with work. It's an activity done to achieve a purpose or a, a result. All right? Now, let's ground this whole thing in who God is. Let's be honest about sin. Let's think about Jesus. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Even though we're Baptist, we're talking about the Holy Spirit every Wednesday night. Let's talk about the why work matters. And then we'll get to the how we train for godliness at the end. First the why, then the how. So, the character of God. The story of creation is a story of God working and resting. The opening chapter of the Bible, the very beginning of Scripture, God works for six days and then He rests on the seventh day. And you understand, if you've read the rest of the Bible, if you stop right there, you might think, well, He was probably tired. Six days. After six days of work, I get tired. But if you read the rest of the Bible, you understand he wasn't tired. Nothing that he did was difficult. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He doesn't grow weak. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't need to stop and catch his breath. The stopping on the seventh day was not because he was worn slick, because he was done. He was finished. The work was completed. And we read that. At the beginning of our service, in Genesis chapter 2, it says, On the seventh day, God had finished His work that He had done. So He rested on the seventh day from all of His work. He didn't rest because He needed a nap. He rested from His work. He worked six days. He thought it was good. In fact, at the end of it, He thought it was very good. And then He stopped and He rested on the seventh day. And the Bible says, this is important, all the way back in Genesis 2, that He set that seventh day apart to set a thing apart in the Bible is to make it holy. Okay? Doesn't mean that it's like has some magical spiritual power on day seven. It means that God has set it apart and He said, Look, what I've done is a pattern for my people to follow. I worked for six days, activity intended to reach an end or a goal or an objective, and I reached it, so I rested on the seventh day. Set that day apart as holy. It's a story of working and resting. Next, the story of creation is a story of God calling humans to work. You may not like this point, but it's a really important point and it's a biblical point. Right out of the gate, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, human beings are called to work. And this is really important. 
in what chapter of Genesis does sin enter the world? Genesis 3. Are we talking about Genesis 3 yet? Nope, not yet. That's a section coming up in your notes. Right now we're talking about 1 and 2. God's design for human beings and God's design for the world. God's plan was that human beings would work from the very beginning. And I think when you read the opening chapters of Genesis that God had in mind four areas of work or four kinds of work. And I've given you the verses, and I think it's really obvious where you pull these from, but here's the four kinds of work I think God had in mind for his people. Number one was family work. Adam and Eve, male and female, I'm going to bring you together in marriage. My blessing is upon you. And he tells them, we read this back in chapter 1, that he wants them to be fruitful and multiply. There is to be an activity that takes place within marriage that leads to a goal, and that goal is children. That falls under our definition of work. Second kind of work, governmental work. That's what you really get excited about in West Texas, isn't it? Governmental work. Where am I pulling that from? There's no United Nations, there's no Senate, there's no Speaker of the House to kick out or any of that kind of nonsense. But what there is, is human beings being given dominion. I want you to exercise dominion over everything that's been made. Essentially, God set Adam and up as king and queen of the cosmos. Rule over it. That's the language of dominion. I want you to rule over everything. I want you to have authority over it. Family work, government work, physical work. He took Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden to do what? Admire the flowers, lay in a hammock and sip drinks with umbrellas. He put them in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, I can't fully explain or answer every question you might have about that, but I think it implies to us that the garden wasn't going to work or keep itself. This was pre-fall, but Adam and Eve were put there to work it and to keep it. Family work, government work, physical work, and I think in chapter 2 there's mental work. God takes Adam and he parades all these animals in front of him and he says, I want you to name them. I want you to look at them, think about them, which ones are the same, which ones are kind of different, how do they group together, what's distinctive about them. What would you call this one? You're going to have to think about that, Adam. You're going to have to use your brain and come up with something intelligent here. Lots of work going on, and we haven't talked about sin at all. Now, I bring up these four kinds of work for a reason, okay? People who specialize in one of those kinds of work tend to look down on people who do another kind of work with the majority of their time. You know what I'm talking about? Blue-collar folks that do physical work tend to look at the desk folks and say what? Oh, they're so lazy. They don't do it. They sit in a chair all day long. They click a mouse. Click, click, click. Anybody could do it. Monkey could do that job. Chicken could do that job. Click, click, click. And what do the desk people say? Oh, those guys doing blue-collar work, those guys, are, they're not very smart. They don't know much. They, don't, they couldn't do this job, all this analyzing and data and information, and you got to know where to click on this thing. Not everybody knows how to click on They tend to look down on each other, right? They do. They tend to think their type of work is more important than somebody else's type of work. Same thing is true with governmental work, ruling work. People who have authority to rule over others and to lead over others, do they ever get a big head? No, never. Do they ever tend to think, oh, the world couldn't exist without me. Good thing I'm here. I'm here to save the day and tell you how to do your work and you how to do your work and you how to do your work. Sometimes people who specialize in family work tend to think that if everyone else would just do enough family work, everything would be okay. The reality is we need people to do some physical work, and we need people to do some mental work, and we need people to do some ruling work, rightly, although that's complicated now because we're on the other side of Genesis 3, and we need people to do some family work. God created all of this. It's all work. 
It's all dignified. God came up with all of this stuff, and it's right here in Genesis 1 and 2. One last truth about work. In a debate about the Sabbath, Jesus insisted that the Father and Son had both been working up to the present moment. And I know that dips down to the section below on the work of Jesus. But I just want to point out to you that there is a sense in which God rested on the Sabbath because His work in creation was done. But we are not deists. We don't believe that God made the world like a, a watch and He wound it up and He designed it really well and then he, he set it up to run on its own and now He's gone and He's doing something else and He's just hanging out. The Bible describes, this is Jesus speaking, the Bible describes God, the Father, and God the Son as working from creation right up to the present moment. And Jesus drops this comment in a, a debate about the Sabbath, which is a debate about work. That's what the debate about the Sabbath is. It's a debate about work. And Jesus says to the Jews, John 5, I don't want to sort it all out, but he says, look, the Father and the Son have been working right up to the present moment. And the Jews get all mad and they say, you just committed blasphemy because you put yourself in the same bucket as God. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be divine, which he was in part, but they missed the point completely that Jesus was making about work, saying, look, you think everyone needs to just lay down flat and not twitch a muscle on the Sabbath. God's doing stuff on the Sabbath. He's listening to you pray. He's listening to you sing. He's calling down fire on the prophets of Baal. He's saving Daniel out of the lion's den. He's doing all kinds of things from all throughout human history. He's raising up Nebuchadnezzar and Xerxes and uh, Darius, and he's bringing down other guys. He's, real, he's busy. He's doing a lot of things. Jesus describes his own work, or the New Testament describes Jesus' work in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 as upholding the universe by the word of his power. He didn't just create it, wind it up, and set it off to run on its own, but he created it. He finished the work of creating it, and he continues to uphold it by the work and the word of his power. Now let's talk about Genesis 3, the nature of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, their work was cursed. So if your Bible's open, you can look at Genesis 3, verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first promise of the gospel in verse 15. Jesus is the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. But then he moves on. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Remember, we talked about family work earlier. It just got harder. Just got harder. The pain in childbirth is going to be multiplied. And however you want to sort this business out about the husband and the desire and all of this, there's going to be conflict there, which you've already seen earlier in the chapter when God showed up and Adam said, the woman made me do it. He throws his wife straight under the bus. First marriage fight ever. Had never happened until that point. So that work is going to be harder. To Adam, he said, you've listened to the voice of your wife. You've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. What was he supposed to do in Eden? Work it and keep it. What was his job over the animals? Naming them. Naming is a, a position of authority, ruling over them, having dominion over everything that God has made. Now there's a curse on the ground. The ground is cursed because of you. You listen to the voice uh, of your wife. You've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Now there's mercy there, right? Because he's still going to eat. Still get to eat. Still get to have children still get to be married. God didn't take those things away completely. That's His mercy and His grace. They didn't deserve any of that. I'm going to let you keep marriage. I'm going to let you keep having kids. I'm going to let you grow food, but it's going to be hard. 
It's going to be done under a curse. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken your dust, and to dust you shall return. Work is hard. One of the reasons I picked the Christmas song, Joy to the World, tonight is because the third verse sings about, talks about thorns and thistles. And Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and he's going to reverse that curse as far as it's found. He's going to eradicate it completely. But that hasn't happened yet. We're still living in a Genesis 3 world. Thorns, thistles, sweat, brow, hard, fight, pain. And it all ends in death. Their work is cursed. Two more thoughts here. As sinners, we're tempted to be lazy in our work. That's one temptation, to be lazy. We won't look these verses up in Proverbs. I'll leave that to you if you want to look them up. There's some great descriptions of laziness. Really, really great. The, the one in Proverbs 19.24 says, The lazy man is like the person who puts his hand in the dish to get a bite and he can't even bring it up to his mouth. Sometimes I think about that verse when I look at my kids eating breakfast in the morning, getting ready for school, and they have that look on their face that, I can't, I can't do it, Dad. I need a personal day. I need to stay home. I can't even get this cinnamon roll up to my mouth. It's so hard. And I think, oh, that's a, what a picture of Proverbs 19, a lazy person. He wants that bite, but he's just too, he can't do it. He's too tired. There's a verse in Proverbs 22, 13 where the sluggard, not the liar, the sluggard says, I heard there's a lion on the street today, so I better not go outside and go to work. I heard there's a stray dog roaming 42nd Street. I don't want to take any chances with that. I'll just stay home. There's a verse in Proverbs 26 that says the sluggard is like the sluggard in his bed is like a door on its hinges. There's a lot of moving, but you're not going anywhere. You're just rolling back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Don't go anywhere. Nothing's done. We're tempted to be lazy. Next, as sinners, we're tempted to worship our work. I didn't put this on your notes, but you could look at Genesis 11 as an example of people who worshipped work. They looked at their work at Babel as a means of finding an identity. We're going to make a name for ourselves in this work. You could also look at Ecclesiastes 2. One of the places the preacher looked was work. I built gardens. I built a city. I built all sorts of things. We talked about Ecclesiastes not that long ago. Remember the, the dominant words in Ecclesiastes? What does one gain for all of his toil? Work under the sun, well, in the end, it's all hebel. It's just smoke that's here and it's gone. You don't find gain in the ultimate sense in your work. Does that mean that you just go back to the door on its hinges? No. You got to watch for the danger of laziness and you got to watch for the danger of worshiping your work. Does that sound like where we started? The danger of legalism and the danger of laziness in training for godliness. It applies perfectly to this conversation about work. Now, one quick thought before we get to Jesus. We kind of hit on this earlier. I think it's generally true in our culture that older, didn't say old, said older generations tend to say these young people today don't know how to work. They are lazy. Is that generally true? Not of you. You've heard people say that, right? You wouldn't say such a thing. You've heard people say, these young whippersnappers today, talking about your kids and your grandkids, they don't know how to work. They're lazy. You know what? They might be. Every generation has its besetting sins. But many of these younger generations look to older generations, and their perspective is, I think you idolized your work. 
I think it was the most important thing to you. I think that's where you found your identity. I think that's why when you retired, you lost your sense of self because your sense of self was completely wrapped up in work. Maybe you idolized that work. Every generation has its besetting sins, and they're not always the same from generation to generation. So one sin is not better or worse than the other. We want to avoid both of these dangers. We don't want to be lazy when it comes to work, and we don't want to worship our work. We don't want to fall into either of those traps. So let's look to Jesus. Jesus worked as a carpenter for most of his adult life. I put carpenter in quotes because the word in the New Testament could be used for someone who works with wood, which is what we think a carpenter is. It could be also used for somebody that works with stone or does masonry work. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the promised land. There's not a ton of trees, and there's a lot of rocks. So it's entirely possible that his carpentry work was masonry work. But you can look in the Gospels, and there's a verse I gave you in Matthew where they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Talking about Jesus. His dad was a carpenter. This is his son. There's another place where they look at Jesus and they say, yeah, we know this guy. He's a carpenter. So apparently it's what Joseph did, and apparently it's what Jesus did. And I'm kind of piecing some things together in the Gospels here, but Joseph shows up at the early chapters of Matthew, Christmas story. Joseph shows up in the trip to Jerusalem when Jesus is 12, and then he completely disappears. We don't know what happened. Maybe he died. That's what most scholars think. Maybe he moved off and left the family, but that doesn't seem likely because he's always described as a righteous man. So it seems like he probably died. Jesus was the firstborn. That means the family was his responsibility if his dad was dead. And people knew his dad was a carpenter, and they knew him as a carpenter. And he spent many more years doing carpentry work than he spent doing preaching work. So he modeled a life of work. And when Hebrews 2 and 3 and 4 talks about Jesus as our great high priest, he was made like us in every respect except he was without sin. He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was completely without sin. One of the things that means is Jesus has faced the temptation to worship work. And he's faced the temptation to be lazy. And he didn't succumb to either of those temptations. But he lived a life of work. Next, the story of salvation. Remember, we started with the story of creation. The story of salvation is a story of Jesus working and resting. Fits with the story of creation, where God worked and he rested. The story of salvation is Jesus working and resting. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to people many times, my job is to do the Father's work. That's why I'm here. I have work to accomplish. It's not carpentry work. I did that for a while. It's good work. Work is good. Don't worship it. Work is good. But now I'm doing the Father's work. And you understand in the Gospel of John that the Father's work is that he would die on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And what did Jesus say, John 19.30, with his dying breath on the cross, he said, it is finished. What do we read in the book of Genesis? God worked and he finished his work finished his work. Jesus finished his work. The work of creation was finished. The work of salvation has been finished. That's what Jesus says when he says his work is finished. There's a parallel here in Genesis. We won't trace it out too much. The first Adam was given work and he failed at his work and he's kicked out of the garden. John goes to great lengths, if you read the, the last part of his gospel, 18, 19, 20, that part. He goes to great lengths to describe to you Jesus finishing his work. First Adam did not finish it. The second Adam finished his work. And he was not kicked out of a garden, but John goes to great lengths to tell you he was laid to rest in a garden. You can trace that out in the gospel of John. The first Adam failed and is kicked out of the garden. The second Adam finishes his work 
and he's laid to rest in a garden. So working and resting. What about the Holy Spirit? When it comes to work, we're responsible to work hard and we're dependent on God for power to work. I think Colossians 1.29 is helpful. As you think about your responsibility and God's responsibility, Colossians 1, verse 29, Paul's talking about his ministry work, traveling, preaching, teaching, tent making, all of it. Colossians 1, 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. He toiled and he struggled and none of it was easy. And as he did that work, that was Paul's responsibility, he knew God is working in me to give me the energy, to give me the strength, to enable me and to empower me to do the work that he's called me to do. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now let's talk about training. We've talked about the why, let's talk about the how. How do we train for work? Number one, I think we need to accept the necessity and the goodness of work. The necessity and the goodness. And you've got to couple both of those things together. It's necessary, but if that's where you stop, you're going to be a grouch about it. It's not just necessary, but it's also good. Am I talking about only work you get a paycheck for? Am I talking only about work that takes place in your house? We're talking about work where you're recognized with a title. No, we're not talking about any specific thing like that. We're talking about the broadest definition of work. It's necessary and it's good. If you read the book of Acts, the early church is noted for its willingness to sell possessions that they had worked for and to give money to people who were needy. To take some of their material wealth and to liquidate it, things they had earned, worked for, so that other people could have what they need. Now, people are people. You travel all over the world. Human nature is human nature. You travel back in time. You travel forward in time. People are people. This willingness to help people ended up in situations in the early church, in the earliest churches, where people were mooching. They were taking advantage of that. But does that surprise you, that people would do that? Doesn't surprise me. That's people who don't understand how work works. And so Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, you can look up 2 Thessalonians 3, he says you need to stay away from people who are idle and won't work. You stay away from those people. And he says, you need to imitate me. Paul says, you need to imitate Paul, him. And what he's talking about is his tent-making work. And he says, when I came to Thessalonica, I didn't mooch off you. I had a job, physical work, so that I could do my job preaching, mental work, gospel work, ministry work, and it was all good work. And you need to follow that example. And he expected people to provide for themselves and work for their own living. So that's in Thessalonians. We read earlier, we started in Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, he says, Look, Timothy, I think you got uh, some widows in Ephesus. They're not getting a social security check. They're not getting, you know, disability. They're not getting that. There's nothing there in this culture. You need to take care of these ladies. You need to have a program. You need to enroll these ladies. Don't enroll all of them. Here's the ones you should enroll. And then he says something really interesting. He says, if they have family who can work, the family needs to take care of them. And if they have family that won't work, that family that won't work, they are worse than unbelievers. Work matters. Matters in the beginning. It matters in the New Testament. Proverbs 31, profile of a godly woman. We often talk about her character. But she does an awful lot of work in that chapter. It makes me tired just reading it. She wakes up early. She's making clothes. She's doing real estate transactions. She's working in the home. She's working out of the home. She's doing all kinds of stuff. Is it just 
something to aspire to, to be busy. No, it's a woman who understands the value of work, the dignity of work. Next, believers should embrace the principle of Sabbath. Notice I'm asking you to write in the word principle, not law, not command, not rule, but principle. You, for homework, read Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the two lists of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. They're identical, commandment for commandment, except there's a difference in the fourth one. And in Exodus, I think what you'll find is that Moses tells the people in Exodus 20, you need to work six, rest one, so that you can remember that God is your creator. And I think if you read Deuteronomy 5, you'll find same guy, Moses, reminding the children of the Exodus generation, Deuteronomy 5, you need to work six, rest one, because God is your Savior. There's change within those commands. Just in Moses' lifetime, there's development there. There's a new idea being added to it. It shouldn't surprise you that when you get to the New Testament, there is no clear command for strict Sabbath observance. It's not to be found in the New Testament. In fact, Paul says, look, the people arguing about days, look, just do what you're convinced to do. Go do what you're convinced to do. Let's not make a mountain out of a molehill. It's not that big a deal. The principle of the Sabbath is important because the principle of the Sabbath we read from the opening chapters of the Bible. It's not just in the Ten Commandments God invents this and says, hey, I think it would be uh, time after all this ancient history of people for you to start taking one day off a week. That's all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God takes that day and He sets it apart as holy. And the principle involved in Genesis to Exodus to Deuteronomy all the way to the New Testament is you should work. You should work hard. But you should also rest. And when you rest, you're acknowledging, God, I trust you. I'm not going to work on this day. But I'm going to look to you and I'm going to rest and I'm going to acknowledge that I'm a creature and I can't work every day like you do, God, upholding the universe. I can't do that work. I need a break. You can do that because you're God. I can't do that because I'm not God. Does that mean that every Sunday you have to be off work and in this room? Well, not necessarily, depending on your job. But it does mean that in your life there should be a rhythm of work and rest. That's the principle. Believers should work with enthusiasm and excellence. Now, I don't want to be Pollyanna. There's still thorns and thistles and frustration, and all the rest of it. But I think what Paul says in Colossians 3 is you should work eagerly, enthusiastically with excellence as if you're working for God and not for some human being. All of your work ought to be done as if you're doing it for God himself. Enthusiasm and excellence. Last, believers should work with biblical and balanced motives. We're short on time, so I'll just give you these four. I don't have it on the screen. I don't have it on your notes. But here's some of the reasons, some of the motives you ought to work. Number one, imaging God. Reflecting who He is, what He did in the beginning. He worked and He rested. You should want to follow that example. That's the principle of Sabbath. It's not just a rest principle, but it's a work and rest principle. Secondly, to provide for your family. That's a good reason to work providing for your own family, because if you don't do that, the New Testament says you're worse than an unbeliever. You provide if you're able to work, you provide for your family. Thirdly, so that you can give. I think you trace this out in the book of Ephesians where Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work so that he has something to give to anyone who's in need. Imaging God, providing for your family, giving, and lastly, witnessing. When you go to work, you're around people I don't know. 
and they'll tell you things they won't tell me. And they'll listen to you talk about things that they won't listen to me talk about on a Sunday. And God has not accidentally placed you where you are in your home, in your neighborhood, in your life, in your work, in your profession, in your retirement, in whatever stage of life you're in, so that you can be salt and light to the people that He's placed around you. So we work with biblical balance moments. Time is short, so we'll pray. God, we're grateful for Your Word. Uh, We thank You that as our Creator, You know how life works best, and You have told us how our lives ought to play out, and that work ought to be a part of that. Lord, whether we have a title or we don't, whether we get paid or we don't, whether we're successful or we aren't, whether we work with our hands or our mind, whether we work in a home or you've placed us in a position of authority over people, or do we want to be faithful in being godly in our work? We want to understand who you are. We want to recognize our sin. We want to see the example of Jesus. We want to toil and struggle with all that we have, knowing that you're the one working in us. And Lord, we want to be serious about training ourselves for godliness. Ultimately, our hope is not in our work, but it's in Jesus who lived for us and who died for us and who has promised to come back and usher in a world where the curse is removed in every area of life, including over our work. And so we look to that day with great joy and great anticipation And as we sing on our way out, we sing about the hope that we have that one day the curse will be fully removed from our lives, our relationships, uh, this world, and even our work. So, Lord, be honored in our singing. We do it for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.